0: Hi, and welcome, I guess. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to speak at EA conferences. Always a very smart crowd asking smart questions, so I'm, uh, I'm counting on you guys. All right, let's jump in. Ingredients for building disruptive research teams. I only realized afterwards that the title was basically going to be the ad for the talk, and I should have probably chosen a less dry title. Well, here goes. 11 tricks for making a research team more disruptive, and you won't believe number four. Didn't make it into the program, so you're lucky that your questions have a better chance of making it into the Q&A because there are fewer of you. Um, But yeah, let's get started. We don't have a lot of time. This is important because it turns out that answering the question, how to do the most good, turns out to be pretty darn difficult. And I personally was confronted with that fact about a year ago when I started managing a research team at the Effective Altruism Foundation, where I still work. And so I thought, well, I should look into the research that exists on how to make research teams um, more effective, how to build disruptive research teams. And that's what I did. I then wrote a really long forum post in spring of this year. Um, and I thought, well, not a lot of people have the time to read that, so I should give uh, the cliff notes of that post here as a talk. And this is uh, what this talk going to be about uh, so if you're interested in a more in-depth uh, treatment of this uh, of this topic, go check out um, the post. I'll put up the, the link at the end. So when I embarked on that research project, I basically decided to look at two, two kinds of sources, the first one being academic literature. I focused on two papers, the first one called Characteristics of a Productive Research Environment, uh, which was a literature review from '92. And then a meta-analysis called Team-Level Predictors of Innovation at Work, a comprehensive meta-analysis spanning three decades of research. Uh, Because those struck me as being particularly uh, robust when it comes to uh, the academic literature, where the quality isn't very high to begin with, but looking kind of at these review sources. I then complemented that with a bunch of case studies. I'm briefly going to cover those. So you have the RAND Corporation, a U.S. defense think tank. I looked especially at the golden years of the 50s and 60s where they sig- uh, significantly shaped U.S. nuclear strategy. Um, they have the Santa Fe Institute founded around 1980. They pioneered the field of complexity science, which some of you m- uh, may know. It's a bit hard to read, but this is the Palo Alto Research Center of Xerox. Uh, and they basically developed uh, personal computing as we know it both uh, on the hardware side and the software side so any laptop or personal computer that you're using basically has a lot of um, influence from the research um, at this uh, from this research lab you have AT&T Bell Laboratories as the research lab of um, AT&T telecommunications uh, monopoly in the US in the middle of the 20th century And the research there basically ushered in the modern information age. So they developed the transistor, which is the foundational part of digital computing. Uh, You have Claude Shannon developing information theory there. You have early work on the laser, uh, Unix, C, C++. They put the first uh, telecommunication satellite into orbit. So a lot of um, advanced science going on there. Uh, This is Skunk Works at Lockheed Martin. Uh, That's the special projects division of Lockheed Martin. Uh, They were basically tasked with developing cutting-edge aircraft, military aircraft. They developed the first jet-propelled fighter jet in the U.S. They built really advanced spy planes during the Cold War. They built the first uh, stealth fighter. Um, So, yeah, cutting-edge of aviation, basically. Uh, Then the Manhattan Project... Uh, I looked especially at the so-called Project Y, or Los Alamos Laboratory. So the Manhattan Project is basically like this really huge operation during the Second World War, and the Los Alamos Laboratory was basically tasked with building the actual atomic weapons. They did so in only 30 months from uh, 1943 to 1945 and built two separate bomb designs in that time. So they developed two distinct nuclear weapons. Um, and then lastly, if you, these two gentlemen... Um, that's uh, Amos Trisky and Daniel Kahneman, uh, two psychologists uh, who basically did uh, pioneering work in psychology and economics. They kickstarted behavioral economics as a field. I think many of you are familiar with their work here in this room. All right. Before we dive into the actual findings, some assumptions to get out of the way. The first one teams are more than the sum of their parts, so it's not just about like assembling really great people, but there's something happening in a team environment that like can make a difference right otherwise it wouldn't really make sense to look at like how to build great re- uh, research teams or just boil down to yeah just get uh, get great people into the same room then research team impact in quotes is not normally distributed, so the very best teams kind of like make up a large part of the research team impact that you have in the world right that's what justifies looking at the like very most effective teams or the most disruptive teams that i describe in the case studies and then lastly progress is not quote unquote in the air so there's this idea of inventions or discovering happening simultaneously but like several people uh, some of you might be familiar with that literature of line of thought and If that's the case, then it doesn't really matter to like build an effective research team because like other people will figure it out in the same time regardless. So I think another assumption here is that you can either speed up research significantly by building really outstanding teams or you can alter the direction in which the research frontier is progressing. All right, with that out of the way, let's get started. I've divided this into three parts. Firstly, I'm gonna look at basic building blocks of these teams, then at team dynamics, And lastly, at the management of those teams. Firstly, basic building blocks. Assemble excellent researchers. So I mentioned that it's not all about excellent researchers, but you can't really neglect it. Um, And it's pretty important. This guy put it like this. Never hire good people because 10 good people together can't do what a single great one can do. Uh, That's Bob Taylor from the Palo Alto Research Center. And... I think that's, broadly speaking, correct, especially if you talk about cutting-edge research and especially if you talk about so-called blue-skies research or foundational research where you don't have a lot of direction, where the tools aren't really clear, where you maybe have to develop the tools in the first place to tackle those questions. I think there it's really important to have people who are really, really capable. Now the question is, what does really capable, great, or excellent mean? That was not the focus of my study, so I only can share some impressions. Um, those are that the people tend to be really, really bright. That probably cashes out as something like general mental ability or G-factor or something like this. I think they tend to be extraordinarily curious, um, maybe bordering on the obsessive. Uh, I think all of you have met these people who just want to talk about their research, and that's all they do. I think these people tend to be on those teams. And then lastly... They tend to be what Warren Bennis calls deep generalists. So they tend to be versed in the tools of many disciplines, but are not so deep into them that they're constrained by the thinking of those fields, right? They're able to use the tools from different fields to apply them to problems that they're working on, but they're like willing to go beyond the thinking that exists in those particular fields. And I think that's a pretty good description of the people I encountered when looking at the case studies. All right, once you have these people, what do you do? Well, you orient them towards a shared purpose. I think it was noteworthy that many people on those teams thought that they were like a mission from God, to put it like a bit hyperbolically, right? The prime example here being the Manhattan Project, where you had persecuted Jews from Europe working in the nuclear race against what they perceived to be the nuclear program of Nazi Germany. Turns out it was not very advanced, but still, these people thought that they were on a really important mission to get this done. And I think that is often not a problem in effective altruism, because I think many people here are fueled by some pro-social purpose. I think that's great, and I think that's often what's needed to do the most uh, important research. Um And I think it does kind of like channel the efforts of the people you want to involve, right? It will... Um, unlock energy resources of these people it can often resolve conflict because you have something higher to appeal to that can then basically prevent you getting into like petty squabbles so I think that's also really important if you want to do something great thirdly set up good leadership I think that's intuitively plausible but also backed up by the research that I looked into um, that If you, and I'm going to go a bit more into this later, if you have all of these team variables that play a role, you want somebody who can set up those variables in the right way. And I think that's often leadership who will be a role model for these kind of things, who will recruit people who fit into the culture, and so on. Three things basically stood out to me. The first one is they have a really strong and relevant research background so that they have the respect of the team that they're leading so that they can recruit from the professional network that they have, and so on. I think that's important from a variety of perspectives. They're good at resolving conflicts. Um, I think the kind of people you want to attract for these kind of projects often are fairly idiosyncratic. You might call them strong-willed or stubborn. So I think it's good that you have somebody who can mediate between people so that like the team doesn't fall apart because of like personal stuff. Um, I think the mission also helps, but I think capable leadership in that uh, respect is also important. And then it can make sense to have a separate administrative leader. So if you have a PI, principal investigator who leads the research team sometimes, it can be good to like have somebody else who takes care of like the university bureaucracy if you're part of a larger organization, for example, um, because that requires a different skill set, a different focus and so on. All right. So now you have a team, you have a leader. They want to do the same thing. Great. How, what does that look like in practice? You want to rely on autonomy and self-organization. That sounds very abstract. Let's make it a little bit more concrete. Um I think the uh, heuristic you want to follow is something like fund people not projects. So you want to give people a lot of freedom to work on the things they find most important and most interesting. You don't want them uh, you don't want to assign them to a particular project and then just like force them to work on that for like 5 years. I think you want to have an environment where the researchers can flock to the most interesting to the most impactful projects. So you want to have fairly fluid dynamics. And then I think the autonomy part is that you want to give people a lot of freedom and shield your researchers from short-term pressures related to publication, related to commercialization. Again, I have a quote from somebody from Park, Jacob Goldman, who originally set it up. He said, if you hire me, speaking to the Xerox executives at the time, you will get nothing of business value in five years. But if you don't have something of value in 10 years, you'll know you've hired the wrong guy. So these are the kind of like long-term feedback loops that um, that you have if you do these kind of blue skies foundational research, right? You can't expect breakthroughs in two or three years. You will have to wait a significant amount of time. Create spaces for interaction. That's important because basically you don't have fixed projects so that people are forced to interact with each other. So you will have to create spaces where people bump into each other, the pro- uh, proverbial water cooler, I guess. And... This is what it looked like at Bell Labs. You had this really long corridor. At the end was the canteen, so people actually had to walk um, along it every lunch break. And here people would like serendipitously bump into each other, talk about their research, get into contact uh, uh, with each other. And also you would have these like glass windows in the wall so people could look at the work that was being done in different labs and so on. And this is a pattern I found time and time again that the uh, that the leadership of the team often designed the physical space they were in exactly for this kind of purpose. This is also the case at the Santa Fe Institute, where they had like very spacious communal areas that were comfortable, where people wanted uh, to hang out, wanted to share ideas. So I think that's really important to have this kind of like shared space where people would hang out. Foster psychological safety. This sounds a bit vague. Um, I think a good illustration is the relationship of these two guys. Here we have them again: Amos Tversky and Danny Kahneman. Um, Amos Tursky was a very creative mind. He would come up with a lot of like different ideas. A lot of them were wrong, and Danny Kahneman's job was basically to poke holes into the ideas of Amos Tursky. And this can be a very productive, and was in this case a very productive uh, relationship. Because if you want to make progress, you need to come up with a lot of new ideas. right? But a lot of them are going to be wacky and wrong. So you will need to separate the wheat from the chaff somehow. And I think it's often hard to have that in one person. So I think you need several people to kind of like do different parts of that job. And I think in a team environment, what you want for that is this kind of psychological safety where people feel safe to voice controversial and wacky new ideas, where people feel safe to criticize those ideas and where the, where, uh, and where the people who are being criticized feel comfortable even afterwards coming up with new ideas and don't feel put down, right? It's not obvious to me how to get there. I think this is the goal state you want to go towards. Um, I have some ideas based on what I've read. I'm happy to answer that um, as a question. But I think, in general, this is the kind of environment w- uh, that, uh, that that you want to have in your team. Where people don't feel like their status is being threatened. If they're being criticized or if they come up with the wrong idea and so on. Right? I think that's uh, that's really important keep the team small, I think that follows basically from this kind of psychological psychological safety. I think it's easier to have this kind of a relationship with maybe 10 people than to have it with 100 people. And if you have just one person in the room who you don't feel comfortable being wrong in front, you will not voice the critical ideas, right? So I think there is a ceiling that you have um, where you don't have this kind of psychological safety anymore. And I think that's important um, to have if you want to uh, push the frontier. Also related, facilitate regular high intensity exchange with the outside. So I think because with people outside, you don't have this kind of safety. I think you want to have sparing contact, right? Because otherwise, I think new ideas will often get kind of like nipped in the bud, right? Because there will be a lot of criticism of these kind of new ideas because people have a different mindset. They don't really understand. And that's going to make it hard. But I also don't think that you want to be like completely unconstrained. Um, with what other people think. right? I think you want to have some criticism from the outside, and I think some stimulation of the creative environment that you're in by people bringing in new ideas. So I think you want to have regular high-intensity exchange. What does that look like? I think a workshop, like a two-day workshop, is probably a good prototype of what you're looking for, where you can present ideas, people can criticize your ideas, but you're not, like, married to the person, right? And they don't hang out your office all the time. Um, all right. Thirdly, management. Eliminate all conveniences. The basic rule of thumb is don't be a university. Um, So I think there often people who are in academia complain about the kind of like bureaucratic struggles that they have to go through. Don't do that to your researchers. Basically, try to eliminate all minor inconveniences, obstacles, so that they have all the bandwidth that they can muster to work on the kind of problems that you're interested in. Um, I think that also often means uh, being able to give them cutting-edge equipment if that's necessary, especially in engineering, machine learning, give them all the compute you can muster, that you can pay for. I think that's important. Um, there's a funny anecdote again from Park where they wanted to get the most advanced supercomputer of the time. I mean, not supercomputer, but the most advanced machine that they wanted, which I think was the PDP-10. And Xerox was like, "No, that's from a competitor. We're not going to pay for it. You have to use our machine." Uh, so they were like, "No, this is like you're not building the right computer that we want." So they just like build a copy of the PDP-10 as like their first project in like six months. Um, so I think if you're not going to give people the equipment, they're just like not going to do the work or they're going to find like workarounds. So you know, just be easy on them and give it to them. Rely on immaterial rewards. That doesn't mean don't pay them at all, um, but it means that the research seems to show that beyond market rate, it doesn't make a large difference. I think people want to come to these teams and want to work for these teams because they're excellent people there, because they have the freedom to work on the most important questions, because they think it like, serves a social purpose. So I think you're not going to attract the best people um, who want to work on like, pro-social things with like a lot of money. Right? Um, at least beyond market rate. Um, broadly speaking, there's probably exceptions, maybe in machine learning nowadays, right? Um, but in general, I think that holds true. Execute an impactful theory of change. So, what that means is that uh, insights uh, on their own are not enough. You need to actually execute on those insights. And Steve Jobs put it like this real artists ship. I think if you would translate that to research, it would be like something like real researchers publish or something. Um, so I think you need your ideas out there somehow, right? And if you don't, you're not going to affect change in the world. So I think it's worthwhile to really spend a lot of time thinking about who you want to affect with your insights and how you're going to achieve that. And in that way, I think you re- that your strategy of how you're gonna change the world basically acts as a force multiplier on the kind of insights that you're generating. So it can be like 100X, you can minimize your research if you just publish it in some obscure journal that nobody reads, you might even turn your insight uh, into having negative impact. If you publish an information hazard right, in uh, biotechnology or whatever, you can actually do harm. So I think it's really important to think about how your uh, research is going to be important for the world. I think, again, in this crowd, that's probably kind of like a no-brainer. But still, uh, I think it's important to point out that you should spend significant time thinking about it. So there you have it, um, the 11 tricks uh, for making your research team uh, more disruptive. I'm not sure if number four was particularly surprising, um, but yeah, if you're interested in learning more, uh, I'm happy to answer your questions. Uh, you can also go to this short link, um, that will lead you to the post that I wrote, where everything like methodology, caveats, my own lessons and so on is uh, treated in much more detail. Um, but yeah, I think we're at 90 minutes now, so uh, I think I'm going to wrap it up here. And uh, thank you uh, for your time.
1: Um, So have you looked into to what extent the progress is not in the air idea is actually true?
0: (laughs) Not as much as I would like. So I've read a little bit about it. And it seems, from what I've read, at least it seemed plausible that in a lot of cases, this is the case that progress is in the air and that there are multiple discoveries at the same time. Um, I think this is more so the case for established fields where the research frontier is kind of clear and multiple people are working on it. I think it's less the case for example in this community where I think a new research frontier was created in some sense. Uh, When you look at like long-termist effective altruism research, I don't think a lot of people were like asking the same questions or like trying to answer the same questions. Um, so I think, to some extent, it depends on the field that you're that you're in. And I think in a lot of cases, the progress probably is in the ER. But I think in some cases, also not.
1: Great. Yeah, that's a really important distinction. Thank you. Um, so I think this is also a really great question. Um, how do you create spaces for interaction when people increasingly work remotely and in different time zones at that?
0: You don't? <laughs> um, yeah. So what should you
1: do instead, then?
0: Yeah, I think... Remote research uh, research teams, I think that's hard. Um, We have that ourselves to some extent, and I think it makes it difficult. Uh, And I think this is one of the lessons was that we're just trying to bring people to the same place, because I think you just get more of these serendipitous encounters, because on Slack and via email, you always just have like very targeted and purposeful conversation, but not these kind of like free-flowing, kind of like, this is what's... Interesting to me right now. What are your thoughts on that? That's never going to be like a Slack message that you send out. Probably for most people. Maybe for some people it is, but I think it's not the norm. Um, so I think if you are remote, I think probably trying to increase the face to face time. And I mean, physical face to face. So having like, I don't know, two week, like research periods where you're just trying to gather people in the same space, I think can create some of that. Um, Probably then you want to institute something like uh, regular all hands Skype calls or something, where people can just talk about and have space to talk about what they're thinking, um, is, uh, uh, where their thinking is currently at, so that other people can have like partake in their thinking. Um, there's also some precedent in the case studies for kind of like creating these um, all hands meetings where you try to get everybody on the same page, try to get people immersed in the thinking of other people, and I think that can work in some cases.
1: Great. Yeah, thank you. So um, in the post that this talk is based on, you talked a little bit about what this research implies for your own organization. And I think it would be really great for us to hear some of those thoughts.
0: Sure, yeah. Um, so the first thing I realized is that maybe there are other people who are more qualified for like leading research teams than I am because I don't have a very strong research background. Um, so that was a bit of a humbling experience. Um, but that aside, I think a couple things that we realized um, were one that we want to cut down on remote research and try to bring people into the same uh, place. So we're now relocating to London, uh, because we think that that's a better environment to have people. Some of the people were more keen on moving to London than to Berlin. So we thought, well, then we're going to make that step. Um, and in general, trying to yeah create these, um, these sort of, uh, shared spaces. So that was one insight. Um, I think another one was thinking more about how we want to have our insights uh, disseminate in the world. Um, So that, I think, made us more excited about publishing a research agenda that we were kind of like on the fence before. Um, So yeah, I think those are some of the concrete lessons that at least I took away from it.
1: Great. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, so I think we're going to wrap it up there. Um, but Stefan has office hours from 3 to 3.30 in the Queen vault, if you want to ask him more questions. And he's also just going to be, like, right outside that door after the talk if you want to grab him then. Um, so thank you for this presentation and for being part of EAG this year. Thank you. Yeah.